And so we're in Luke 18, and we're going to start reading a few verses from verse 31. Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, What do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. Last few occasions I've been speaking, um, we've tended to be in the book of Luke and almost just taken a snapshot of the story that Luke's told. So last time we're looking at a, the snapshots, as it were, of, of Jesus teaching the parable of the lost son. And this time it's a kind of snapshot, not of Jesus in teaching mode, but Jesus in, in action mode. And we're going to focus on his encounter then with this blind beggar and with the crowd as well. It's called the blind beggar here in Luke. In the account that's similar in Mark, he's called Bartimaeus. So we're going to be looking at his encounter with Bartimaeus. But first, just to catch the context, just to kind of set the scene, we read those verses from verse 31, where Jesus was predicting all the events that were about to unfold in Jerusalem. So let's just, to catch uh, a glimpse of what's going on for Jesus in this situation. It would just be good to, to, to home in to begin with on these few verses where Jesus is predicting his own death. He's also predicting his own resurrection, but he's, he's predicting it even with details involved to do with being mocked, to be insulted. He's going to be spat upon. He's going to be flogged and then killed. He's made um, earlier predictions to his disciples as well. So back in, in Luke 9... And verse 21, he says to his disciples, Jesus strictly warned them not to tell anyone of this. And he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. So he's been, as it were, just explaining, mentioning to his disciples, this is, what, this is where I'm heading. This is where we're going. Um, Throughout, really, the disciples don't really seem to understand what was happening for Jesus. Now, this prediction on Jesus' part is not... uh, He's not like a stone man just impassively saying, this is what's going to happen. These are facts that he is aware of and is fully distressing for him as well. So he says in Luke 12 and verse 50, he says, I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am 
until it is completed. Jesus knows that as he is now approaching Jerusalem, all that the prophets have spoken about is there waiting for him, including his own painful death and including uh, him then being separated from God as he receives all the punishment on his own shoulders for the sin that should otherwise, uh, for, the, for the punishment that should otherwise come to us because of our sins. So the situation is distressing. So let's just get hold of that. Jesus is now approaching Jericho, aware of everything that is about to happen as he approaches Jerusalem. But he doesn't have what I would call tunnel vision. You know sometimes where, where athletes are preparing for a, a very important race. They'll be in uh, the stadium, uh, their name might be announced over the tannoy, people might be cheering. But for that athlete, they have to so focus on what's about to come up that they need to kind of blank out what's going on around them, kind of get some, some in inverted commas, some blinkers on. So they're not really aware of the crowd. They're not really aware of their surroundings. They've just got to focus uh, on this task that is set before them. Or like a boxer uh, going into the ring. Great fanfare and all the rest of it, but they're, they're just limbering up. They're focusing on the challenge that's before them. Jesus is aware that this is... Uh, Jerusalem represents almost his goal. Because at Jerusalem, his, his earthly ministry is kind of coming to its culmination as he dies, as he's uh, laid in the ground, and he's raised to new life. In a sense, we might say that that's the, the ultimate reason that Jesus came. He came in order to die. He came to give his life for a ransom for many. He came to die on the cross. So that's his goal. That's his vision. That's his mission. That's where I'm going. But he doesn't have tunnel vision. He's not so focused on that that he ignores the plight of people around him. So I can uh, sort of recall around about now, for many people it is uh, exam season. If you have just finished university term or GCSEs or A-levels, and uh, you know it's kind of coming to the crux like two or three years are all winding up to these few weeks when you kind of give your all to try and get some decent grades for your exams. And it can be a stressful time. Revision, kind of focusing in on your work, going, things, going over things time and time again, maybe not kind of spending the same amount of time with friends and family because you're focused, you're kind of preoccupied. And when you are with people, as maybe sometimes, I can recall at least, a tendency then to feel a bit snappy, because you're tense. It's stressful. This is not easy. You know it's got to happen. You know that kind of these few years have been building to this point. That doesn't mean it's necessarily pleasant or enjoyable. And so it's easy just to feel tense. Now, you might want other people to understand what you're going through, to sympathize with what life involves for, for me right now, because I'm about to pass or fail my A-levels. When Jesus is under arguably stress that's more arduous than any one of us would experience in life, at a point where absolutely no one on the planet understands what he is about, what he's going through, what he's about to face, what do we find Jesus doing? Just putting the blinkers on? Heading through a crowd? Dashing, I've got to go to Jerusalem. I've not got time for other people. I've not got time for people whose situation isn't as challenging as mine is. 
what we find about our wonderful Saviour is that with all that going on, as we will see, he gives attention to the cries of one person in the crowd, intervenes in that person's life with astonishing grace and power that totally transforms their life for the rest of their life. They have a personal encounter with the Lord Jesus. He's not got the blinkers on. He's not ignoring people. In a sense, yes, his mission, his goal is to get to Jerusalem and to suffer and die for our sins. But his mission is also to seek and to save the lost. And so when he's around people, he's attentive to what's going on. He's attentive to their cry. What a wonderful saviour. Now we see in the, uh, in the account that follows two reactions to Jesus. There's the way in which the crowd responds to Jesus. And then there's the response of the blind beggar. And we're going to look at both those, focusing on the crowd uh, to begin with. Now the crowd, I think, is made up of two groups of people, broadly speaking. The first group of people are the disciples and followers that are with Jesus and are with him following on the way, all the way through to Jerusalem. The, the men and women who've been with him during the course of his ministry, they've responded to the message that he's been preaching and they have uh, allied themselves with him. They're following Jesus. He is their teacher. He's their rabbi. They're following him. The other group of people will be the residents of Jericho who've heard that Jesus is coming and so go out as a way of kind of showing honour in that culture. They would, they would have gone out to meet Jesus on the road and kind of would accompany him back into town. In Middle Eastern culture, that's something that has even happened uh, in kind of contemporary modern history, if you like, where, uh, say, a, a president is visiting a village and villagers will go out to meet him. And I heard of one instance where they, uh, they obliged all the drivers to stop the engines of the cars for the president and all his delegates. And they tied ropes to the cars and then pulled the cars into the village as a way of showing honour. So on the face of it, that's what the crowd are doing. They've heard that, about Jesus, news about him has spread, and they're aware that he's on the way. So they go out and then they come to bring him into town. So for us, it would be like if England, uh, if England won the World Cup. Now you might have to use your imaginations at this point. If England won the World Cup, and there'll be more about miracles later, the crowd, <laughs> there would be um, a big crowd that would gather in Heathrow uh, Airport at the terminal to welcome them in, maybe with flags and all the rest of it, to welcome them back into town, as it were. Um, and maybe uh, later on, open, open tour bus ride where crowds line the streets to welcome uh, the impressive team. And we all pray that's what happens. Well, maybe some of us do. Um, now, for these guys in Jericho, their expectation would have been that Jesus would come to Jericho and he would spend the night in Jericho as their honoured guest. So it's possible that they had already selected a respectable host who would put on an impressive banquet in Jericho that they're bringing Jesus to. And there are other instances in the Gospels where Jesus is invited to a banquet of respectable people, the Pharisees. 
on the outside, showing him some honor. But on the inside, actually wanting to suss him out. Work out what are his claims? Who is he really? Maybe we can, you know, later on, maybe we can try and catch him in a bit of a trap and, and, uh, and get him to say something that will kind of ruin his popularity as well. So it's all possible that that's what's happening here. They heard Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Jesus of Nazareth, they say. Jesus, this kind of maybe wise man, good teacher. We've heard a bit about him, a bit prophetic. Perhaps let's, let's get him in. Let's welcome him. Let's invite him. Let's suss him out. So outwardly showing honor, but actually attempting to control, attempting to control what then happens. It, it's just a, a, a small detail, really. We see at the beginning of verse 39. The blind beggar is calling, is saying, look, what's happening? They're saying Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He starts to call out. Then it refers in verse 39 to those who led the way. Now, compare that to Mark, a similar account in Mark chapter 10. Describes in a wonderful passage, I think, Mark 10 and verse 32. At the same point in the story, just being told by one of the different gospel writers, they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. And he goes on to uh, predict his death and then encounters blind Bartimaeus a little bit later. So there is Jesus leading the way. Again, we don't find Jesus in the midst of impending crisis, if you like, in impending challenge and difficulty. We don't find Jesus at the back of the crowd, dragging his heels, just wanting other people to kind of just help him along. Needy Jesus. Jesus boldly leading the way, even though he knows what's happening, even though he knows what's to come in Jerusalem. Here, the crowd come out and say, no, no, now we're going to lead. Now, we'll show you the way to go, Jesus. Come this way. No, don't avoid that. Come this way. We've got it all laid out for you. You can imagine if if, uh, if royalty came to the Jubilee Center, we'd want to show them honor. Maybe we'd say, come round, come round this way. We'll just kind of guide them through, as it were. Maybe that's what the, the crowd is wanting to do here, but it's not appropriate at all. People are trying to determine the way that Jesus should go. This way, please, follow me. No, Jesus is the Lord. He's the one who sets direction. He's the one who should be leading and in control of this entire situation. So are there ways then in which we try to control? Very interesting, the, the word that Deborah brought a while ago, about sometimes perhaps from a, uh, a learnt pattern of behavior, maybe if we, we, we're not quite secure, we feel a bit uncertain, uh, Previous experiences made us a bit wary, and so we want to be in control. We like to know what's about to happen. We want to know um, where life is mapping out. And if we don't feel like we know, if we're not in control, then we are uncomfortable. We're not at ease at all. And so we want to be in charge in, in many ways sometimes. We can do that by assuming, like the crowd, that our plans and decisions for life are good ideas, rather than inquire of God first. We can just assume, we could say in some senses, we could kind of communicate to God something like this. Father, you know I don't have the same amount of time to seek you 
as perhaps I once had. So please bless what I'm about to do. And even if what I've planned is wrong, and in fact I'm being disobedient, please stop me without any negative consequences. Or we might kind of, in a sense, rework the Lord's Prayer into Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. My will be done in heaven as it is on earth. Here's what I've got planned. Here's what I'm thinking. This is what I'm going to do. Will you, will you bless me? And uh, if not, then I'm sure you'll still bless me. Sometimes that's the way that we can approach big decisions. Sometimes that's what heroes of the faith did in Scripture. A, a, a man after God's own heart, like David, was sometimes uh, guilty of assuming that his decisions were good ideas and not inquiring of the Lord. And so, after defeating Goliath, he's, he's with Saul, who is the king. But at this point, uh, David has been anointed king, and Saul, in kind of growing uh, jealousy and hostility, is out to get David. And so we kind of pick up the story in 1 Samuel 21, by, by which time David has made the decision to flee Jerusalem in fear for his own safety. So he's fled, he's legged it. He didn't actually inquire of God whether he should leave Jerusalem. God had said, I'm anointing you as king. God was well capable of keeping David secure and safe in Jerusalem, even though there was this very real threat of Saul's presence. And so David then starts to make decisions on the basis of his own assumptions and things can and do in this situation go wrong. So 1 Samuel 21, he went to a place called Nob to Ahimelech the priest. Ahimelech trembled when he met him and asked, why are you alone? Why is no one with you? In other words, David, it looks like you're a fugitive. It looks like you're running away. Are you, are you running away from something? Are you in problems? Why don't you have uh, some of the other guys from the army that you command with you if you're on some mission? David lies. David answered Ahimelech the priest, The king charged me with a certain matter and said to me, No one is to know anything about your mission and your instructions. As for my men, I have told them to meet me at a certain place. That wasn't the case. But he blacked it. He lied in a sense. Oh, he made that assumption. He said, oh, I'm sure this is the right way to go. I'm sure this is the right thing for me to do. But then it, it catches him and he becomes uh, deceptive in it. Then there's this fascinating moment where he's faced with the option. Um, David asks Ahimelech in verse 8, don't you have a spear or a sword here? I haven't brought my sword or any other weapon because the king's business was urgent. The priest replied, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah is here. It is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. Now, the ephod at that time was the means by which you inquired of God. And so David is making what he seems is a perfectly rational decision. I'm under threat for my life. I need a sword. I need something with which to protect myself because I'm in fear of what might happen. And so he overlooks the ephod. He overlooks inquiring of God to go for the sword. In other words, he's just making decisions that, that seem obvious to him. That's just that's obvious. 
It's obvious to run away if Saul is about to try and kill you. It's obvious to grab a sword on the way. But it might have been obvious from him. But it wasn't right. And he just made things, he just, I'm just going to go with what's obvious. And if we treat things as always obvious, we can just make God into our sidekick. Come on, God, do what I think is the best idea. Do what I've planned. Come along, Jesus, this way. We've got something planned for you. We want to honor you, yeah, but you're, you know, you're our special guest, but follow us. And um, it's just a, a word of warning. We need to be careful that uh, both decisions that we make and advice that we give aren't based on, well, it's obvious, isn't it? You just do this. You just do that. Do we advise people who come to us on the basis of our decisions and experience, or do we encourage people to inquire of the Lord? Now, it's not to say that there are no absolutes in life, so that if someone comes to us saying, I'm just wondering, I'm trying to make a decision on something. Should I commit adultery? I'm just trying to work it out. Should I go and shoplift? I'm just puzzling through at the moment. Our response wouldn't necessarily, hopefully wouldn't be, well, if you feel peace about it, if that's the way that the Lord is leading you, it's just ridiculous. Um, so it's not saying there are no absolutes. There's no sense of that. We, we, we do bring truth. We speak the truth to one another in love. But sometimes with some decisions, whether to go for this job or that, whether to live here or there, aren't so necessarily cut and dry that you find a verse in the scripture that says, Dan Mayton, do this on the 20th of June at 1 o'clock. It's, it's not as straightforward as that in a lot of decisions that we face. And so sometimes we can just say, well, in my experience, this was right, and so I'm going to just project that upon you. Do the obvious. Do what I think is a good idea. Rather than saying, well, let's inquire of God. Let's not pretend that we know always what the best thing to do is. We need to allow him to be God. Allow him to be in charge and in control of our lives. The crowd wanted to take charge. The blind beggar was different. And so let's move on to the blind beggar or Bartimaeus. Now, having said all that, you can kind of draw the conclusion, have the idea in mind, well, we do want to follow Jesus. Therefore, we'll just get tremendously, we'll just get tremendously vague about everything. You know? So if God wants it to happen, yes, we'll, we're, we're open to the Lord's leadership. Uh, we'll, just, we'll let him uh, kind of set the pace and crack on. What the blind beggar shows us, what Bartimaeus demonstrates to us is how to honour Jesus with faith that is proactive. This is not passive passive faith. This is not just let's wait and see. This is proactive faith. And there are several aspects to this man's faith that I think are wonderfully impressive and honour who Jesus is. The first is this. This man has faith that Jesus is the promised Messiah. For the crowd, he was just Jesus of Nazareth, which might be kind of code for uh, that guy we've heard about who has done some impressive things, uh, kind of maybe a wise teacher, an alternative rabbi. Like There's many kind of, of these revolutionary rabbis coming through. A, a good guy, we're just not quite sure what he is or who he is, so we're going to try and find out what he stands for. Jesus of Nazareth. There's this fascinating development through this account 
They identify him as Jesus of Nazareth. But this man calls out to him, Son of David. A phrase, a title that's not frequently seen, but is, is saying, I know, Jesus, that you are the one who has promised that would come in the line of David, descended from David li- David's line, and would be on David's throne, not just for a limited period of time, but for all eternity. That's what he's saying. I know that you're the one who's come to save. And so the, the development continues. He says, Son of David, have mercy on me. Later, as he's asked a further question, he's saying, Lord. Again, he's recognizing, you are my Lord. And after he receives his sight, he is praising God. This man is clear on who Jesus is. I, this, is not a spe- this is not just a special guest. You know, it would be appropriate to show hospitality to an ordinary special guest in the way the crowd is showing hospitality. But Jesus isn't a guest. You know, sometimes we use the phrase, invite him into your life. Invite Jesus into your life. Invite him into your heart. Are we inviting Jesus in? to be a guest or to be Lord. If, he, if we're inviting Jesus into our lives to be a guest, then we're still in charge and we still basically decide what happens with life. I can remember I was coming towards uh, the end of my university uh, years and um, people, I, I may have said this before, but people often ask me the question, well, what are you, um, you going to do next? And so I used to just say what was obvious to me. I just said, I just came up with what, felt obvious. Uh, and that was, well, one more year, I'll be in Sheffield for one more year, then I'm going to go somewhere else. Uh, it was just my standard response. I didn't get that response because I inquired of God. I came up with it. I was inviting Jesus in as my guest. Jesus, I think I should go this way. And then at the point of then inquiring of the Lord, God said in a wonderfully clear way, well, in a sense, he rebuked me. And he said, no, Dan, don't don't put limits on God. Don't just decide this is what God want, wants to do. Inquire of the Lord. So we're not just inviting him in as a guest, but we're recognizing, Lord God, you're in charge of my life. I want to follow you. Number one, faith that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Number two, um, faith. This man had faith that Jesus is good. He uses the phrase, Lord, have mercy on me. I was thinking about that. If I heard someone in the street shouting out, maybe they were in conversation with someone else, shouting out, have mercy on me, I would understand that phrase to mean, please don't do the nasty thing that you've planned to do. That's often the way that we can think of mercy. Please don't do that nasty thing. Have mercy on me. Or please don't give me what I know I deserve. Have have mercy. What this guy is saying is, have mercy, I know you're a God of mercy. I know that you're a God of compassion. I know that you're a God who gives good things. And by this point, this blind beggar, in order to have known that, he must have heard of some of the things that Jesus had gone about doing. Word had spread, must have spread, about the miracles that Jesus had performed elsewhere. Perhaps he caught wind of this one, Luke 5 and verse 12. 
While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Maybe he caught wind of that. This man, the Lord Jesus, he is willing to make people clean. Interestingly, the name Bartimaeus means son of filth. Um, Maybe Luke didn't mention that. Mark feels free to mention that. Son of filth, son of grot. And here's this guy saying, well, maybe. Here's the Savior. Here's the Messiah who's coming, and he's willing. He's willing to heal. He's willing to make clean. We could look in, in Matthew. Matthew chapter 14 and verse 13. Just another example of Jesus demonstrating wonderful compassion. Uh, when, he heard, when Jesus heard what had happened, i.e. John the Baptist had been beheaded, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot uh, from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. He also had compassion on them by making sure they had something to eat and by miraculously providing food for 5,000. A God of compassion. Sometimes we can think the miracles are there just to show who Jesus really is. As though Jesus just went around, kind of, be healed. Aha! Look, I've just healed. That means that I am the Son of God. Well, it is, but it's also, I've healed because I'm a God of compassion. I intervene in people's lives because I am good. I'm compassionate. I'm seeking. I'm saving. I'm rescuing. I'm a God who's on the lookout. And then just a third example in, in Luke chapter 7 and ver- from verse 11 describes there, soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. That is not a good situation. To be a widow without a husband and your, your only son has just died. A large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her and said, don't cry. Then he went up and touched the coffin, and those carrying it stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. But what was the motive? Where was Jesus coming from? His his heart went out to her. He understood not just his own destiny, his own plight, the stuff that he was going to have to suffer, his heart went out to those who were suffering. His heart goes out to us. His heart goes out to you. His heart goes out to this man, this blind man. So this guy, Bartimaeus, with this kind of evidence in mind, draws the clear conclusion, I'm going to shout. If Jesus is passing me by, I am going to shout, Lord, have mercy. Because his faith was that Jesus is good, and that Jesus gives good things, and he shouts out. His faith was also, thirdly, that Jesus hears and responds when he would call out. So for us, we can have the faith that Jesus hears and responds to us when we call out to him. The crowd are saying, be quiet, or more literally, shut your mouth. He won't be interested in you, O son of filth. 
we've got this all mapped out. We've invited him to a banquet. We're in charge. Just be quiet. Don't inconvenience this guest of ours. Don't put him off. We want him to get a good impression of what it's like around here. You're a bit of an embarrassment, really, aren't you? Just be quiet. That's the crowd. And sometimes when we approach God, we might not have those kind of things said to us by other people. But sometimes as we come before God, again, maybe as Deborah was saying, we can kind of project onto God experiences that we've had elsewhere. And so we can assume God is maybe just perpetually in a bad mood. And so as we're coming towards him, we can have just that in the back of our minds. Things, voices or thoughts that are coming, he won't really be interested. God, God's not going to listen. What's What's the point? Prayer is not effective. I should just kind of bear it myself. Whereas actually, in that situation, we miss out on what's rightfully ours. And so this man, with his faith, fights off those thoughts and he shouts all the more loudly, have mercy on me. Fourthly, his faith is also that God answers specific requests. He begins by saying, have mercy on me gets Jesus' attention, he goes on to say when asked, Lord, I want to see. Lord, have mercy on me. could mean anything, really. could mean, could you give me your loose change, please? But he's saying, Lord, I want to see. And so he says, he gives his specific request. Jesus gets this man to put into words what he wants. And that specific request gets answered. And fifthly, and lastly for now, (laughs) this man has faith. That nothing is impossible with God. He has faith that God can do anything. And so for us, do we believe in the God of the impossible? It's so easy to pray on the basis of what we've experienced before. Well, if I've seen that happen before, I, will, I feel confident in praying for it again and, uh, and believing God. And obviously that's a way in which our faith grows when we get answers to prayer fantastic those answers to prayer can spur us on to pray for even bigger things if we pray only for what we have already experienced in life as a church as individuals then actually our life will grind to a halt and we will only ever experience the familiar we'll only ever know that which has already happened before here's a guy calling out to god for what he has never had before he's never been healed of blindness before, but he believes, no, here is a God who can do the impossible. Here is a God for whom nothing is impossible. This is the God that we believe in. Now, like the crowd, we don't come to him trying to to twist his arm, but we do come. We can come. We have permission, more than permission. We're invited to come to him and make specific requests to bring things before him, to expect for breakthrough, to expect him to bring direction, to expect him to do that which humanly is impossible. Let's pray together.